We're kind of slowly working our way through John chapters 7 and 8, and the approach that I've been taking to these chapters is to occasionally um, you know, skip a theme that comes up because it's going to come up several times in the chapters, and we'll kind of deal with some of these different ideas at, at different points. And so this is one of the rare ones, maybe the only one where I've actually had an ending scripture, because uh, I'm pretty sure that we'll be able to get to verse 31, and I know, know that we won't be able to get past that this morning. Um, but we, we are going to come back to something that came up in chapter 7 that we, we skipped first. So uh, Jesus opens chapter 8 by stating that he's the light of the world. And what he means by saying that he's the light of the world is that he's the ultimate revelation from God of spiritual reality. If we want to understand who God is, if we want to understand why the world exists, you know, if, we understand, if we want to understand why the world uh, is the way that it is spiritually, we need that light that only Jesus can provide. Jesus' claims are, as, as usual, quite extraordinary in this chapter, and they're contested by the religious leaders. Jesus defends points to, uh, to the fact that his divine claims can't be settled by flawed human judgment. The idea that you know, created humans get to decide whether someone is God or not, or whether God meets their expectations of who God should be is an absurd idea at the surface. Uh, if, if Jesus' claims are true, they need to be self-authenticating. Um, Jesus is God, and anyone that's looking at the claims that were made by Jesus Christ and exercising reasonable, right judgment would have to reach that conclusion. The fact that some don't doesn't mean that Jesus is any less divine, but it, it instead it points to the blindness of the religious leaders and any, anyone that rejects that. And one of the examples that I brought up last time you know, would be that music critics are not the ones that get to decide that Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is a great symphony. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is a great symphony. It's been recognized by countless audiences you know, through its existence as being a great symphony. It doesn't need anyone to tell it that it's a great symphony to, to be a great symphony. You know, another example would be a bunch of art critics deciding that the Mona Lisa is second rate. Um, that wouldn't show that the Mona Lisa is a me mediocre painting. It would show that the art critics don't know what they're talking about. Um, Jesus is God. You know, his works and his teaching very clearly attest to this. And if someone can look at Jesus and not see his divinity clearly, that person doesn't know anything about who God the Father is either. Uh, and we're going to come back to that idea. Following this defense, Jesus warns the leaders of the consequences of rejecting him, and that's the verses that we're coming to. We've actually seen a very similar warning in chapter 7. So if you've been paying close attention, you'll notice a, a lot of the phrases are repeated between these sections, and we'll look at that. And so we kind of skipped over that warning in chapter 7 so that we could kind of deal with both of the warnings together in chapter 8, which I think is the more e efficient way of doing it. So let me go ahead and read the, the text, and then we'll compare them. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? 
Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say, or sorry, I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So first let's uh, put up the comparison. Uh, and I'm going to go, go ahead and just read chapter 7, verses 33 through 35. You'll notice the warning is a little bit shorter and a little bit less harsh. Uh, so the warning that he first gives back in chapter 7, Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer than I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Um, the, there's an important intensification between the two statements, and I'll, I'll keep those statements up so that we can kind of compare them. One is that you will seek me and you will not find me, and then it intensifies to you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Um, there's a second important intensification on the part of the religious leaders. The, the, at first, they speculate that Jesus is going to go to the uh, Jewish diaspora. Uh, these are Jews that are kind of scattered around the world. They've retained their Jewish culture. They still form synagogues as long as there's enough Jews in a Gentile city to do that. And we, we see these throughout, throughout Acts. Um, but they, they haven't come back to the, uh, the, the land. Um, so they, these, these were descendants specifically from the, the exile. Um, and they were looked down on they, by, by those who had come back to the land because Jews uh, were commanded to come back to the land and some obeyed and some didn't. And so the, the, the Jewish communities that hadn't obeyed that command were looked down on by the uh, Jews in, in Israel at that time. Uh, and so they, they're, they're seeing, um, there, there's a little element in this first statement that Jesus would be kind of going to lesser Jews than the Jews that he was presently with. It's, uh, it, it is a negative uh, in their minds, in, in the, the first intensification. But then the second uh, response that they have is, is much worse. Um, they speculated that he might be uh, saying that he was going to commit suicide. And you know, as you would expect, Jewish teaching almost universally condemned suicide as an extremely serious sin. And uh, in fact, here's a quote from Josephus. The, their theology generally held that it would automatically earn one, quote, uh, a spot in one of the darker regions of the netherworld. Um, it was seen uh, correctly as an act of impiety towards one's creator. And you know, I certainly would agree with them that suicide was, is a very serious sin, although I don't know that it... Um, very few would go so far as to say that it... Uh, you know, is a sin that can't be forgiven. But the, the point is that uh, the, the Jews are speculating that Jesus may mean that he's going to kill himself, and that's something that they were far too holy to do. And there's a, a really interesting irony. Uh, irony is always worth looking for in, in the Gospel of John because it's usually there. And the irony is that Jesus is offering them the only source of spiritual life that they can possibly have. 
You know, his voluntary submission to death in their place you know, gives life to all of God's people. And it's their refusal to accept that gift that's freely and graciously offered that actually amounts to suicide. Um, in fact, it's even worse than suicide because they're not ending a physical life prematurely, but they're choosing eternal spiritual death. Uh, another difference is, in, that's a little bit more subtle, you could kind of read right over this, is in the first uh, warning that there's a, a singular sin. And that almost uh, certainly just refers to the specific sin of unbelief. Um, we're going to see a plural sins in, in the next one that I'll come to. But I, I want to look at the beliefs of the Pharisees. We've talked about this before, but it, it's worth mentioning that in a lot of ways, the beliefs of the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were fairly orthodox. You know, they, they believed in the one God that's revealed in Scripture. You know, they uh, believed in all the inspired scripture that had been written that, in that point. They accepted that as a, the authoritative word of God. And not only did they believe it, they sought to obey what was taught in the scripture. They uh, diligently studied the law. Many of them would have memorized the first five books of the uh, Old Testament that contain the law. And part of the reason to memorize that was to know the entirety of the law to be able to obey it. Um, they were generally conservative and orthodox in other ways. And although their study and their devotion and their practice would, be, would have been astonishing from a human perspective that could kind of look at it externally, it would amount to what I think Pastor Tim would call a splendid exercise in missing the point. Uh, they, they failed to see in Scripture their sin and their need for salvation and for mercy, which is throughout the Old Testament. They... Uh, failed to look for the deliverer that was constantly promised through the Old Testament. They looked for a political deliverer, but they didn't look for someone that would deliver them from their sins, which, you know, as Christians, we can see again and again throughout the Old Testament. And, in fact, they even didn't have very far to look because that deliverer was standing right in front of them, and they were completely blind to him. And so this is a serious warning to us. Because, you know, in some senses, we have a lot in common. We're kind of the religious conservatives of our day. And we generally take our faith a lot more seriously than those around us. And so I, I think that you know, it's easy just to kind of read over this and think, okay, these, these guys don't get it, but we do. Um, th this is a warning that we, we want to look at, make sure that we understand, and make sure that we're not falling in <clears throat> into the same sorts of errors. We can have a lot of the right uh, theological ideas, and we can live them out in a practical way, but we could also miss our personal need for salvation as only Christ can provide it. And we can also not um, look to Christ as our only possible hope of salvation. Uh, Christian apologetics often focus on simply defending the existence of some sort of higher power. You'll, you'll see a lot of apologetics that are basically just a theistic argument. And the, the thinking behind that is that if you can demonstrate conclusively that God exists, the thinking is that you've made some progress, and I don't think you have. Um, it's not convincing someone of the existence of God. It's convincing someone that they need Jesus Christ. That's really important. Or not important. It's essential. It's critical. And it's uh, what we're, we're seeing in, the, in these verses. Saving faith isn't you know, some you know, theological data that we need to consider to be true. Saving faith is realizing that Christ is our only hope and then clinging to him. 
you know, this is something I'm, I'm very thankful for about this church and especially Pastor Tim. Uh, this is a, a truth that you'll hear preached again and again and again, especially in this church, and that's a, a very definitely a good thing. But it's, a, uh, it's something that we all need to be cautious of. Right belief has to focus in our need for Jesus Christ and for Jesus' ability to perfectly, completely, and dependably meet that need. So what does Jesus mean when he says, you will seek me? Did he expect the religious leaders to actually try to personally find him after his death? And that, that was a question I, I puzzled with quite a bit. One of the commentaries in particular, I think, dealt with this very well. It's a, the commentary by D.A. Carson. And if you only have one commentary on John that you want to consult, this, that would be the one I would recommend. And just a quote from Carson, because I think he just does it better than I possibly could. By, I am going away, Jesus refers to his death, um, uh, the means by which he goes away to his father. It's unlikely that John thinks that the Jews will then seriously seek Jesus personally. He knows perfectly well that most of the leadership were only too glad to see him go and did their best to quell the persistent accounts of his resurrection. What is meant, rather, is that they will go on looking for the Messiah, which is why Jesus said, you will seek me. If they do, they cannot possibly find him. They are chasing an ephemeral wisp, for they have rejected the only Messiah that there is. They will die in their sin. The singular uh, refers to the sin of unbelief. And you know, there's a, a real tragedy to, to this. The, the vast majority of the Jewish people are still looking for a Messiah, uh, just as the crowds then were enthusiastically looking for a Messiah, but they wouldn't accept the Messiah that, that God provided. Um, moving on to verse 24. Um, let's see, do I have... Yeah. <clears throat> the, the he is not present there. That's kind of added for clarification in most translations. And the wording in Greek is a little bit awkward and really would be very literally translated for unless you believe that I am. And I think to us who understand that I am is the you know, name that God revealed for himself, it's used throughout the Old Testament, it's first revealed to Moses in the Exodus. You know, Jesus is claiming deity here. Uh, and I, I think that the way that I've slightly modified the text to um, de-emphasize the, the he that, that's added for clarification, and I'm putting I am in bold, probably gets closer to what Jesus is actually saying in the Greek, at least uh, according to the commentaries that I've consulted on this. It, it's easy to lose sight of the stark contrast that's really at the heart of Christianity. You know, we're all born dead in our sins, and we face an eternity of perfect justice for those sins. Jesus um, has moved the, the discussion back to the central truth in, in this exchange. Their only hope of salvation is to believe that Jesus is God incarnate. And Jesus is saying that clearly. You know, he, and not just to believe that he's God incarnate, but also to see that they need him for, for salvation. Um, and, th and that's something that we're going to see emphasized as we move uh, through the text. Jesus has said this clearly, and his works leave no alternative explanation. His teaching is also self-authenticating. It could only have been given to him by God, and one of the things that he's pointed to previously is that his teaching isn't 
uh, doesn't benefit him at all. His, his teaching you know, only glorifies God. And that's one reason that you can see that his teaching is different than the teaching of someone that's trying to gain something from that teaching. But they won't see that, and they uh, won't see it because they don't want to see it. Uh, and Jesus is uh, trying to help them see it by warning them of the consequence of their, of their continued unbelief in the most severe terms here. Jesus' response in 25 is also apparently very difficult to translate. Uh, the reason is that it's an idiom, uh, presumably, and there's very few occurrences of that particular idiom in classical literature, and evidently there just aren't enough to figure out what the idiom means at all. Um, so, not surprisingly, translations kind of go all over the place with it. Um, the ESV, uh, this is uh, in, in verse 25, just what I have uh, been telling you from the beginning is the way that this idiom is translated, <coughs> excuse me, in, in the ESV, but it's not very close to the original, and the original doesn't make any sense to me in English if you just sort of look at a literal translation of it. Um, and several commentaries suggest that it's, you know, why am I still talking to you? Or, or something along those lines. It's, you know, evidently it's, you know, you, I've said this a number of times, you should have uh, grasped it, it by now. And, and there does seem to be a little bit of frustration with it. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and move on to verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And uh, again, there, there's some interesting irony in, in this. And perhaps in, in John's gospel, the greatest irony is that you know, Jesus Christ is both the eternal God, and he's the, the creator of heaven and earth. You know, he's one that can perform great signs and great miracles. He can teach as no one else can. And yet, the greatest and the most sublime and the most awe-inspiring revelation of his glory is to suffer and die on a cross. So being lifted up on a cross in shame and agony is the same as being lifted up to ultimate glory. There is no doubt that John means, uh, is referring to the crucifix, excuse me, is referring to the crucifixion when he's saying that Jesus will be lifted up. But uh, what does Jesus mean when he's saying, then you will know that I am he? presumably must mean, not mean that everyone that's aware of Jesus' crucifixion is going to come to saving faith. We, we know that that doesn't happen uh, and that, that crucifixion is going to happen in roughly six, six months from this point. But for those that do come to faith, it, it's the cross more than anything that demonstrates Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father and most powerfully validates his testimony. And there's you know, irony that we can look at in, in this from other perspectives as well. You know, it's going to be the Jews that are now seeking to kill Jesus that are going to be the ones that will lift him up six months later when they succeed in having Jesus executed. Ironically, their efforts to get rid of Jesus and to humiliate him by having him die the, the most humiliating and the most excruciating death are going to have exactly the opposite effect in, in that it's going to serve to advance Jesus' work and it's going to serve as the highest expression of Christ's glory. Now, it's, it's very important, uh, you know, as, as we look at the details of this, not to miss the real seriousness of this warning. 
you, this is a very stern warning, and it's not directed towards you know, godless mobs that are uninterested in spiritual things. You know, everyone here is someone that has come to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts that's specified in the Old Testament. You know, they're, they're uh, religious, and they, you know, they, they travel to, to practice uh, their religion, which is good. Um, and it's not directed at ch casual churchgoers that you'll live one way, uh, uh, one Sunday out of the month, they choose to get up for church in time that particular Sunday and a, a different way the, next, the rest of the week. It's, in fact, even it's directed not just towards the, those, the crowd in general, but it's directed at the religious leaders specifically. Um, the, the most religious and the most devout there. They, they looked back over the scriptures, they saw that those who had gone before them, and they thought, we would certainly do better if God were to send a prophet you know, than the uh, people you know, did in the Old Testament who didn't listen to the prophets at best and killed them at worst. But we have the same tendency to look at those religious leaders and think, what a bunch of ignorant hypocrites. We'd do better if we'd been there. And that's the wrong response. John is trying to warn us that we wouldn't do any better on our own. Our only hope is to abandon all hope in ourselves and to look to Jesus as our only hope. So this is a really serious warning to us as well. The warning is specific. There is a time when it's possible to come to Jesus as needy and desperate sinners in, in need of a savior, but Jesus is also warning that there will be a time when that's no longer gonna be possible. It, it's true, of course, that the gospel invitation is offered to all, but the scripture does consistently speak of a time in this life when, at least for some, it, it is too late to turn back to God. And, let me go ahead and demonstrate this by a, a couple passages. Uh, this is from Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 20, and I'll uh, put it up on the screen uh, towards the end of this section because I'm going to read a, a longer section so you kind of get a, a flow of, of thought from the author. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love to be simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you, because I have called, and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand, and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored my counsel, and would, not, uh, ha and, and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come on you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, um, would have none of my counsel and despised my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of the way, their way and have their fill of their own devices. So I, I think that passage is fairly clear, but we also see a very similar uh, and I think more specific uh, statement of the same principle in Hebrews. In, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians that are in the process of falling away. At least many of them have. They've left the church because of persecution. They, and they're tempted to go back to Judaism because that avoids persecution and it's something that they're familiar with. Um, and the author repeatedly warns them of the seriousness of, of, of doing that in the first part of the epistle. 
And then about a chapter before this, he switches into kind of practical advice to try to keep them from um, drifting. And there's some positive advice, and then there's very stern warnings, which we've seen throughout Hebrews. And so this is one of the warnings in that section. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. <clears throat> Oops. Oh, there it is. Sorry. Um, and by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And I, I think the most frightening and the most tragic example would be that of Judas Iscariot. Judas spent three years following Christ. He heard Jesus' teaching. He saw the signs that he performed, and he, he witnessed a perfect life lived before his eyes for three years. I do believe that the gospel was offered to, to Judas in a real way, that you know, there was nothing preventing Judas from accepting that free offer of the gospel except Judas. He didn't want to accept Jesus for who he really was, and he wouldn't until the end. I'm sure that he was convicted at times, but he consistently refused to come to Christ for salvation. Eventually, I, I do think that we see a picture in Judas, it's not clear in, in the Gospels, but I, I, I think it um, makes the most sense that you know, he had reached a point that it was too late. We certainly know that he was remorseful over betraying Jesus, but he, he didn't seem to have repentance offered to him because he didn't repent. He showed remorse but he, he, he fell short of repentance and he ended up dying in his sins. And so these are, are frightening warnings, as, as I've said for us. Christ's offer does have an expiration date. If we're drawn to that offer and debating it, we don't have a guarantee of an op another opportunity to respond in faith. Jesus' warning here is deadly serious. His listeners, the religious leaders, may have uh, more religion and they might be more devout than most, uh, however, they too were sinners, and they had not had their sins dealt with. A time will come for them. You know, perhaps it came in this life, perhaps it uh, will come at the resurrection, when they will understand the gravity of their sins, and they will seek God to, for a remedy. But at that point, it will be too late. Part of this teaching is not clear to me. How many times can one reject the offer of the gospel? You know, just how hardened does one become before God condemns one to eat the fruit of the way that they have chosen in the, the words of Proverbs? When, when has someone reached that point? And I honestly don't know, and I don't see a clear answer to that question in the Scriptures. Um, I, I do see, though, a very clear call to repentance now and to immediately embrace the free offer of the best good news possible. The, the point isn't for us to know all the details about how God brings people to himself. The point is to take Jesus seriously. The point is not to look for reasons to reject Jesus, but to look at Jesus and to see a person that's revealed in the scriptures that has to be who he claims to be. Um, seeing some of Jesus' glory and his desirability, we can then look at sincere questions and objections and issues in the light that Jesus provides. And with that light and with the regenerating work of the Spirit, we will be able to judge Jesus' claims rightly. So I advanced slides just a little bit too soon. Um, verse 30 is kind of an interesting verse. And we've seen other stuff kind of like this in the Gospel of John that I'm going to go back over at least a little bit. The paragraph 
ends on what sounds like a really promising note. Jesus is declaring himself to be God in no uncertain terms and warning his audience that unless he comes, unless they, the audience, come to him for salvation, they will search in vain for a Messiah and die in their sins. And then we see this response that many believed in him. Um, but we've seen that response in John before. There's belief in John, and then there's belief. And um, I'm worried that this is the, the first sort of belief that's not capitalized in my notes, not the second sort of belief that is capitalized in my notes. Um, the, the crowds in, in Jerusalem believed in Jesus at the end of chapter 2. So in chapter 2, remember, we have a, a cl cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And um, Jesus knew that that belief was inauthentic. The text literally would be translated that you know, many in the crowds believed in him, but Jesus did not believe in them. And then when we, uh, John kind of shows us what the belief of the crowds was and he wasn't and wasn't through the example of Nicodemus who uh, is connected to the crowds in the text and he comes to Jesus immediately after that incident. Um, he sought Jesus and he, he recognized that Jesus' teaching was divine. There were a lot of positive elements to Nicodemus' response, but it wasn't saving faith. Jesus' immediate response to Nicodemus was that Nicodemus needed to be born again. Um, specifically, what Nicodemus said is, we know that you're a teacher sent from God, and I think I'm going to come back to this point in a, in a little bit. Um, if we go back to the Bread of Life discourse, there are many disciples that eagerly followed, followed Jesus into the wilderness, only to turn away when Jesus insisted that they needed him, not anything less than him, or not anything less than what he has to offer, which is the, the Bread of Life that is his flesh. Um, his true disciples recognize that they have nowhere else to go, because Jesus has the words of eternal life, but most of the disciples there fell away. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move verse 30 into this next section, which is, I think, where verse 30 actually belongs, uh, and I'll, I'll make the case for that in a second. So let me read it, and then I'll come back and I'll tell you why I've chosen to um, you know, alter the paragraph breaks in the ESV. As he was saying these things, Many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham, and, you have, and we have never been slave to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So uh, one reason that you can kind of see, I think, that verse 30 is intended to go with verse 31 is you know, that we see the same phrase. Many believed in him, and then said to the Jews who had believed in him. So uh, John is going out of his way to make it very clear that you know, this is the same group. And as the text progresses, this group is going to become more and more hostile to G Jesus. They're going to call him a racial epithet. They're going to call him demon-possessed, and then they're going to pick up stones and try to kill him. And this is the group that believed in him in verse 30. 
Um, so let me make a, a bit of a comment on the translations. The original Greek text that we have lacks a lot of things that we would be used to in something that we would read. You know, for example, uh, chapters and verses, of course, are not in included. Those were added in the Middle Ages. They're a helpful convenience, but you have to remember that they're not part of the original text, and sometimes they're very badly placed. Often they're, they're well-placed. Um, the, but the original text also lacks sections and even paragraph breaks. Most translations choose to add these. And in a sense, though, they are a subtle form of interpretation. And so it's something that we always have to be a little bit careful of. Now, generally, I think most translations handle those fairly well. Um, but this is a place where I, I don't think that the ES ESV has handled it well. Um, so verse 30 is a challenging verse to harmonize with what follows. But if you've been paying attention to John, you're kind of getting used to that. John loves to make a statement that sounds one way and then it you know, turns out to be something different than you'd expect. And again, his goal is to show us what belief is. Uh, I think that that's the, the main point of the entire gospel. So within a few verses, we see a shift of the crowd that's initially believing in Jesus uh, to, calling, to Jesus calling them sons of the devil and them picking up stones to kill him. The ESV is trying to soften this by grouping verse 30 with the previous section. And lots of commentaries try to make the case that verse 30 is talking about a different group than the group that follows. And I just don't think that can be supported from the text. Um, that hasn't stopped a lot of commentators from trying to do that, but I, I don't think that's the right way of, uh, of reading it. We, we've seen before you know, how John writes in these ways that are surprising and astonishing in, in an intentional way to try to catch our attention and help us to see very difficult truths. And I think that verse 30 is one of of the many examples in, in John's gospel of this. So looking at this, what progression uh, do we see in the crowd's response? If we look at verse 30 and then 31 and then we'll, we'll skip ahead to 37. Um, and the crowd is described as, be as believing in Jesus and then had believed him, so past tense, and eventually wanting to kill him um, in, in verse 37. And if we keep reading, things even go downhill from there. So this is a, a problem. It's difficult to explain, and it kind of seems inconsistent with the crowd's apparent belief in verse 30. And that, as I've mentioned, it spawned a lot of, in my opinion, very dubious solutions that usually try to make the, these groups different groups of people. Um, I think John wants us to see that this group had apparent belief um, but uh, uh, that, that belief was inadequate. And Jesus confronts that. He shows, uh, um, he challenges the part of this belief that's inadequate and brings the, the real unbelief to the surface. You know, from a purely human perspective, the, uh, the initial response of the crowd seems very positive, but uh, this apparent faith isn't genuine. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised if we've been kind of paying attention to what we've seen in John previously. I, I, I've been thinking back through the gospel a little bit as I, I was working on this, and I, I know I've mentioned this briefly, but I'd like to, to flesh this out and go through it again. So if we think back to Jesus' first teaching in Jerusalem at the beginning of the gospel, uh, when Jesus cleanses the temple, the only claim that Jesus makes there is to be the true temple. At least that's the only claim that's recorded. 
and that that account concludes, you know, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That, uh, that seems to be a belief in Jesus that was a, a figure from God of some sort, you know, perhaps another prophet, perhaps something more. <clears throat> um, and then John provides a specific example of, of that crowd with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus clearly states that he believes that Jesus is sent from God. That would be consistent with Jesus at least being an Old Testament, uh, uh, sorry, being a prophet in the Old Testament tr tradition, someone who speaks for God to God's people. Th that belief is certainly a step in the right direction, you know, and it's farther than most of Nicodemus' colleagues in the Sanhedrin ever reached uh, when it came to Jesus. But believing that Jesus is from God and that God works signs through Jesus, it might be correct to, to some extent at least, but it's not adequate belief. It falls short of saving faith, and Jesus' immediate response to Nicodemus is to explain that he must be born again. The next major section dealing with inadequate belief follows the feeding of the 5,000. There, what the text is emphasizing is that the crowds uh, believe Jesus to be the Messiah, or at least their concept of the Messiah. They're ready to make him king by force, and in that day, such an act would have had one of two possible outcomes for the crowd. The first would be overthrowing the most powerful uh, empire that the world had ever seen at that point. The second outcome would be certain death, either in battle or by crucifixion. They were very fully committed to their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. But when Jesus confronted them over their failure to recognize that they needed Jesus himself as the true bread from heaven and as the only source of spiritual life, they couldn't accept him on those terms. They turned away rather than acknowledge they needed Jesus themselves for spiritual life. And so then I think it's, it's appropriate to look at chapter 7 and chapter 8 and ask, what's Jesus talking about in, this, in these chapters? What, what does it mean when the crowds believed in him? What do they believe? It, it's not adequate belief, but they, they believe something about him. And very few of the commentaries that I looked at had the guts to even to try to answer that question. Um, and I didn't like any of the answers I found. Um, so the, the way that I think about this, take this with a grain of salt because I, I, I couldn't find it supported elsewhere, but if you look at chapter 7 and 8, the emphasis in what Jesus is trying to get across is his divinity. We, we saw that in previous chapters. And so I think that when John is saying that the crowds believed in him, they accepted Jesus' uh, claims in the chapters. And the main claim that Jesus is defending again and again is his divinity. Mm -hmm. um, that might sound like adequate faith, but I, it isn't. You know, even recognizing that Jesus is divine is not the same as saving faith. Not when it's just a piece of intellectual information that doesn't result in recognition of dependence on him. And we've seen that what the crowds have lacked consistently has been dependence on Jesus. And we're going to see that again very clearly in this section. So I, I could be wrong on, on that. I'm, I'm certainly on thin ice when I can't find a commentary that, that supports it, but I do think it makes sense. What clues do we have in 31 through 38 regarding the nature of the crowd's inadequate belief? <clears throat> When Jesus mentions that following him is the only means of genuine freedom, 
they immediately stated their belief um, that they were fine prior to believing in Jesus. Jesus says a lot in this statement. This is a statement that you know, a lot of us are, are familiar with. It's not an accident that this is a particularly recognizable verse out of, uh, out of John's gospel. But notice that they ignore most of what Jesus says in this you know, enormous verse, and they seize on one idea, and that is the idea that they needed to be free. Why? Well, the reason is that they don't see a need for them to be free. They don't see that they need to be set free from something. They see their current state as being perfectly fine, and they don't see a need for, for change uh, of where they are at that, at that point. In other words, they believe a lot of information about Jesus. In my opinion, they even are at least open to the idea of accepting that Jesus is God incarnate, but they don't need him. Um, I'm going to quote from J.C. Ryle, and in, in fairness, J.C. Ryle uh, s doesn't see the crowd's belief as being uh, that <clears throat> Jesus is God. He thinks that, that they see him as the Messiah. And I, I just don't see Jesus claiming to be the Messiah very often in these verses. Uh, and so that, that's why I, I don't think that's the most reasonable interpretation. But uh, I think J.C. Ryle g gets this part right. Let me quote this. Um, the extent to which men may be intellectually convinced of the truth of religion and know their duty while their hearts are unrenewed and they continue in sin is one of the most painful phenomena in the history of human nature. Let us never be content with believing things to be true without a personal laying hold of the living person, Christ Jesus, and actually following him. So with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says. Jesus knows the crowds far better, better than they know themselves. And as we have seen repeatedly at this point, Jesus would rather lose followers by exposing the deficiencies of their inadequate faith rather than allow someone to follow him without adequate faith. It's reasonable to expect that Jesus' statement is designed to confront the inadequate faith that Jesus sees in the crowds that are in front of him. Um, so, looking at the time, I don't think I have time to actually jump into verse 31. Um, the, the next point would be what Jesus means by abide in my word, but I think that's a little bit more than I have time for. But I do have time for a question or two or a, a comment if anyone would like to make one. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us perfect truth in your word. I thank you that we all have copies of the Bible that we can sit down and look at and we can see a perfect revelation of you in the person of Jesus Christ revealed in those pages. I pray that you would open our eyes to our need for you and that we would recognize more and more how much we need you and that we would cling to you for salvation and that we would delight in that salvation that you have given to us freely. In Jesus' name, amen.